hello and welcome to week 22 of the 52 week film project after last week's coverage of the london film festival this week we are back to our regular schedule uh, my name is Will. This is my co-host Jake. How are you doing, buddy? Yeah, I'm good, mate. I'm good. It's um, it was a busy couple of weeks for us, wasn't it? It really, really was. It feels nice to just be back to the good old classic news and reviews. I know, right? With Rotten Tomatoes is back as well. Critics' choice, indeed. Indeed, because we're because we... we're not reviewing films that have just come out that <laughs> no critics have seen. Yeah, films that are so abstract that no one is talking about them online. <laughs> Correct. Yes, mentioning no names, Aquarella. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The only place <laughs> I remember when we were looking up before the episode to talk about Aquarella, we were thinking, like, let's try, let's try and find some some articles about it. Maybe we could learn a little bit about the behind the scenes. And the only thing I could find was like the paragraph of description on the BFI Film Festival page. Anyway, so this week on the podcast, we are going to be chatting through some of the news stories of the week. We've also got a review of Bohemian Rhapsody, which is really exciting. We've been waiting a long time for. We've also got Will's going to give us a short review of a film called The Hate You Give, um, which I don't really know anything about. Um, and then we're going to round it all up with a review of a new Netflix horror film called Apostle. Um, but first off, starting with the news, what have you got to tell us about this week, Will? Okay, so as we might have talked about in the podcast recently, um, there is a PG version of Deadpool 2 coming out on December the 21st. Um, and writers Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, as well as director David Leach, have confirmed in an interview with Slash Film that they have filmed brand new scenes for this film. Um, this, so this is a film that's already come out a while ago. I think it was March. Was it March or May? Uh, it was May time, wasn't it? Because it was it was the first film we when we first started in. Oh, nice little fifty-two week film project history lesson for you. <laughs> um, we our first episode, our debut was Solo and the week before that me and you went to see Deadpool 2 and we really really wanted to be off the ground and kind of starting to record for Deadpool 2 but we just we did not have our shit together mm. I mean we don't have our shit together now yeah but, but at least yes but then, at least we're right doing a podcast now it's we were like two potatoes rolling around with audio equipment we had no idea what to do with aren't we and still no, two potatoes no <laughs> yeah but now we have opposable thumbs we can do <laughs> we've got opposable thumbs <laughs> and we're sweet potatoes <laughs> That was the worst joke I've ever told. Anyway, that was pretty um, awful. cut to it, cut to it. <laughs> so two months ago, they started filming scenes. So quite recently, um, and Wernick adds that the while whilst the new cut will carry a rating that makes it easier for younger audience to see, that doesn't mo- mean it won't appeal to Deadpool's older fans. Um, so yeah, what do you think about Deadpool two filming new scenes that are more child friendly or well, PG friendly right. even? I didn't, I didn't think Deadpool two was that great. I, I think it, it had this really, really hilarious marketing campaign. They did all that shit with Celine Dion and um, they did the thing with David Beckham, didn't they? Yeah, they did David um, Beckham. They did the Man United um, Man United skit. They also did, like, back in the day, um, that Bob Ross thing. I think that was, that was the yeah, first Yeah, they trainer. did. Yeah, yes. I actually, um, on my desk at work, I have Deadpool Bob Ross as a little bobblehead. Oh, you're um, adorable. So basically, the the point I was trying to make was the marketing campaign was great. Loved it. Loved it way more than the movie. I thought the movie was quite flat. I didn't think it was very funny. I don't really think it did anything new. So for that reason, I don't really care about the new scenes. But I also kind of just think, like, is a re-release, like, and it's PG, what, PG-13 or just a PG? PG-13. Yeah. Is that necessary? Like, who who cares? Well, like, I... If, if the film's a 15, 
like all the people that are going to want to watch it are you know they they've either seen it or they can see it or they'll be just about getting old enough to see it by Christmas time. Like why why do we need like a re-edit? Yeah. I think I think I'm not personally very interested in what the finished product is going to be. I think it's a clever marketing strategy um in because Deadpool 2 is mostly about the marketing and less about the film. Um because it will just mean that people who people who are interested in Deadpool 2 are going to think, "Oh, there's new scenes. I'd like to see what they do in the new scenes." And so we'll just just add extra content of Deadpool for fans of the comic and the film. Mm. I just think I just think it's a bit cash grabby. I think it's a bit desperate. Mm. But anyway, moving on. Um, Disenchantment, the uh, show by the creator of The Simpsons, Matt Groening, that uh, debuted on Netflix earlier this year. I don't know if you've watched it, Will. It's um, yes, it's kind of, I watched the first episode. Yeah, so it's the same animation as Simpsons as Futurama. But it's set in medieval times with like kind of elves and goblins and fairies and all this shit. And it's so like the the premise is you follow Bean, who is like a princess who's kind of also like a raging alcoholic. She's a very kind of Homer Simpson esque character, but like trying to find her way in life. Um, it was different to The Simpsons and, the, and Futurama from the perspective that it kind of it told a narrative story through the episodes. So that was quite cool. It actually ended up being quite good. Um, I really enjoyed it. Eric Andre voices a little demon, which is, you know, I mean, his voice acting is amazing. Um, And they've just announced that it's not only being reviewed for another 10 episodes that are coming out in 2019, but it's going to have another 10 episodes in 2020 and another 10 in 2021, which is really cool. That means there's another 30 episodes of this show coming and annually as well. So compare that to Rick and Morty being you know, confirm for like five more seasons or something stupid and yet we have absolutely no time frame for when that's gonna come out. Like maybe we'll see season four by the time me and you are like sixty. <laughs> yeah, that's at this rate definitely. But like, you know, and and this isn't as good as Rick and Morty, but there's something nice about knowing like, oh sick, like they care about it, but they also care about giving you like a time frame. Like you know when to expect this. And that's what I, I like that about Netflix. They're normally pretty good at turning things around. And I like that about my, Matt Groening is that, yes, The Simpsons is what, in its 28th season or 30th season now? Something oh, something ridiculous. Something yeah. crazy. Um, and he Matt Groening always pushes out new content, always tries to keep up with the times. There's a new <laughs> there's a new Simpsons episode which focuses essentially around Drag Race, which I'm going to be very excited for. Um, yeah. But I, th- I, I think I really respect Matt Groening in the fact that he just keeps on churning out content. And sometimes some of it's not as good as the original Simpsons series or the original Futurama series. But I think give him a, ch- give him a chance, give this show a chance especially. Because I think, yeah. I think it's got really cool concept behind it. I definitely think as well the first season of an animated show like this, especially when it's a bit for- break the fourth wall-y, it takes it takes that season... Like, for example, BoJack Horseman, when it came out, like, no one really cared about season one, and it got recommissioned for a second season, and then that's when it started grabbing people. Mm. And we're talking about probably the most emotionally complex and detailed, like, cartoon ever created. Um, so, you know, I have no idea where it could go. I think season one was passable. It had some cheap thrills and a relatively heartwarming story that surprised me towards the last few episodes. Yeah. But it wasn't groundbreaking. Relatively um, safe. Yeah, it was. It was. But, you know, I'm excited to see what happens next. Mm. Cool. So my second piece of film news is that Kathleen Kennedy confirms that the Boba Fett movie is now well 
and officially dead. Um, she talked with journalist Eric Weber, um, which was late, and then her sentiments were later confirmed by Entertainment, Entertainment Weekly. Um, it's now cancelled. This is essentially due to the fact that it's had a quite problematic production history. Originally, it was going to be directed by Josh Trank um, before he left the project in the aftermath of his Fantastic Four film that did not go well, um, to say the that's least. The one, that's the one that he tweeted out about afterwards, being like, I made a fucking great film that was ruined in editing. Like, you'll never see the good version of this movie. Do you remember that? Yes, I do remember that. And it, I think I think he lost, like, a load of his royalties from that because it, it was going against some kind of contract that he had. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the finished product of that film. But anyway, um, and then Logan's James Mangold was a reportedly t- involved in the film. Um, I fucking but- live and I eat, sleep and breathe, James Mangold. <laughs> like, after that film, he can direct whatever the fuck he wants. A Boba like- Fett James Mangold film would be absolutely incredible. Um, but yes, um, they it, it's now stopped because Lucas Lucasfilms have decided to throttle back standalone films following following the relative box office failure of Solo, which is a shame. Solo is the first going back in podcast history again. Solo being the first film that we ever reviewed, uh, and we mate, said give it some love, and no one left, listened. Mate, the points that you know what I think when we get to halfway through fifty two weeks, when we get to twenty six, and we do an episode kind of going over what we've reviewed for half a year. I think we should do like a specific re-review of Solo and watch it again and see what we think because I still hold fast in my belief that Solo was a beautifully shot film with some surprisingly good character character performances um, that was just absolutely obliterated by its lack of marketing campaign. Yeah, and it was it it was a film that was fucking ruined by social media and like almost like anti hype. Like, oh, like weeks before the film came out, don't go see this film, everyone's saying it's shit, no one knew how to f- direct it. Like, it was ruined by its own media. Mm. And, mo- like, a lot of that was down to them. Like, I mean, it was something like, I think, you know, the the latest that you should start teasing content and starting a marketing campaign for a film is something like six months ahead of its release. And they started, like, four months ahead. Or, like, you didn't see a trailer until, like, five months before. Um... But then, you know, the other side of it was just socials and just people, like, hating on it without even having a chance to go and watch it. Yeah. I think The um, Last Jedi did a lot of negative damage towards people's opinions, but that doesn't give people a reason to try and, like, boycott films because of a previous film. Um, also, I think the release date was odd, having it in a summer release session amongst other really big films instead of, like, the the, the tried and tested formula of Star Wars, Star Wars Force Awakens and then... Um, and then having Rogue One straight after that. I don't know why they didn't do it. Um, but yes, uh, Boba Fett movie is dead. Um, the last reason why it's dead is because The Mandalorian, which I talked about in our new segment last week, um, is also coming out, which is directed by John Favreau, and it features warriors from the same race, so they don't want confusion between the two. Um, so Boba Fett once said about Solo, um, Han Solo, Solo, Han Solo, love that, James Bond reference, uh, he's no good to me dead. And this film is no good to be dead. Sorry, I, I completely misunderstood everything that you just said. Did you? Were you quoting Boba Fett? Yeah, he's no good to me dead, mate. So it's what, a classic quote from Empire Strikes Back. What, and he says that about Han Solo? Yeah, it's when he's frozen in carbonite. That's a bit dark, isn't it? Because I suppose if you take that in what we're discussing now... Boba Fett's right and has been for years like you know he's never going to get his big solo screen break because of Han 
Oh. You're so meta. I love hashtag, it. Hashtag Bobber the Prophet. Bobber the Prophet. Um, tweet it. Tweet it. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Um, more exciting Disney news. Now, we know that obviously Guy Ritchie is directing the Aladdin live action film. Um, and we've seen a first teaser trailer for that, which gives you fuck all, let's be honest. Um, we know that Tim Burton is doing Dumbo, and we've seen a slightly bigger trailer for that. It looks incredible. Um, this last week, we had it confirmed that Pinocchio live-action film is going ahead, and it's being directed by Guillermo del Toro. Oh my gosh. Which is incredibly exciting. Um, the article that I found that was talking about this, um, it's from a place called the News International, and they clearly haven't done their fact-checking, because it says... Guillermo del Toro's first movie after winning the Oscars for The Colour of Water. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But obviously, del Toro's just off doing The Shape of Water, which won Best Picture. Again, something that we should probably watch. We we haven't seen that, I don't think. You haven't, have you? No, I I don't. Um, I haven't. Lots of people criticised it as being a bit of a prestige piece. Um, I think it was simply a film that... Um, wasn't shopped around enough to cinemas and cinemas didn't realise the amount of potential it had and so conversely I think it was a film that could have been a massive blockbuster hit and just wasn't because the industry wasn't interested um, but yeah mate I mean I haven't I th- I, I'm going to be honest I think a Pinocchio live action film is going to creep me out a bit yeah I I mean, I was creeped out by the original cartoon. Well, it's those... already a bit of a weird, handsy story, isn't it? So, like, yeah. I just... I don't know. Are, who, are they, who the fuck are they going to cast as Pinocchio? Like... Ben Whishaw? No, you know who I think could do it? Um, that Acer Butterfield guy. Um, you know, the really young guy who was in that Ender's Game. And he's, oh. in, um, he's in Slaughterhouse Rules as yeah, well yeah, that we're yeah. going to watch next week. Um, spoiler alert. Um... <laughs> But yeah, like that, that really small guy. I think he was in Dunkirk as well or something. Like he's like he looks about twelve. And he looks like a privately educated, like, British schoolboy, which he probably is. Mm. Do you think that the guy in Apostle, um, what's his name? Bill Milner, who who is also in um Son of Ram Son of Rambo and is Eric Leshner as a child in um X Men First Class. Yeah, he's another good shout. Yeah, I think he'd be quite cool in it. Especially after seeing him in Impossible this week, I was like, I'd like to see this guy do more things. Alternatively, I'd like them to go like way the other end of the spectrum and for Del Toro to just be like, fuck you, it's all about suspension of disbelief. I'm Alec gonna cast, Baldwin. Yeah, I'm going to cast <laughs> fucking Michael Shannon as Pinocchio. <laughs> or I'm going to cast fucking Vin Diesel as Pinocchio. And you're going to have to deal with figuring this out in the cinema. <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson as Pinocchio. I'd love it. Oh, ugh, ugh, that's so <laughs> creepy! Imagine like the rock in an old man's hands, like with his nose getting bit. Oh no! No, no, no moving on, moving anyway, on, moving anyway, on. Anyway, right, come on, your next, next bit film of news. news. Um, so Aaron Sorkin um, is directing a film called The Trial of Chicago Seven, and Sacha Baron Cohen is in talks uh, to play. Um, it's a ba- It's to play. He's in talks to play. Um, it's been a long goal. Of <laughs> he wanted to play to in Bohemian play. Rhapsody, but they said no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's been a long goal of Steven Spielberg um, to put on the trial of Chicago 7 um, it's based on a true story um, it's based on a documentary um, by Brett Morgan called Chicago 10 
which chronicles the infamous 1969 trial of seven defendants charged by the federal government government with conspiracy and more arising from the countercultural protests in Chicago at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Now, so if it if it if it's based on that, why is it called Chicago Seven and not Chicago Ten? Because Aaron or- Sorkin, mate. Well, what's happening? Are they cutting out four people? Um, I'm not fully sure. I, I, well, it's based on the so the documentary Chicago Ten, and then it's seven defendants. So I'm not fully sure why the documentary is called Chicago Ten. Maybe I will go and watch it and understand why it's called Chicago Ten. But the um the actual film that's being put out now is called The Trial of Chicago Seven, um, and it's been in production hell for a while. Steven Spielberg has been the producer on it since its birth but it has he hasn't been able to find a director or writer previous directors he's looked at is paul greengrass who did the bourne films um and ben stiller which i think would be terrible um brilliant well yeah no that sounds interesting and so sasha baron cohen like will he be playing like a prosecutor or will he be playing one of the defendants or do you not know he's one of the main i think he's one of the main defendants that he's um he was previously in talks to play the part in 2007 um, but the other person he was up against to play the same part, I think, is Will Smith. So uh, that is going to be very odd. Like, they're two very different actors. You say that, but they do walk in quite similar realms of film. Yeah, I Like, I they, agree. they both dabble. They're both quite eccentric, but they both dabble just about into serious drama films. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree in terms of what their role is in terms of films. But when you're doing a film based on a true story, um, that Will Smith and Shatter Baron Cohen just may not look like the guy in question. One of them might look like the other, look like the other one. Yeah. It'll be interesting. Maybe it's surrealist. I love the word surrealist. <laughs> it's, all, it's all mysterious and spooky and no one really knows what's going on. It's not really a documentary. <laughs> Um, well, I suppose this is our Halloween episode, mate. So chuck in as many ghoulish references as you can. <laughs> um, right. Anyway, before we get onto the reviews, my final bit of news: um, the American Film Association, no, sorry, the Motion Picture Association of America. Oh, language, you beast! Um, <laughs> has revealed for its 50th anniversary a study based on like the classifications of all the films that have come out. And so it took into account all 29,791 movies released since the system was first introduced 50 years ago. And right. it found that 17,000 of the 29,000 films are R-rated, approximately 58% of the total. Um, PG rating comes in second. There's about 5,600 movies. PG-13 has about 5,000. And then this god-awful, pointless rating they have in America called NC-17, which has got a staggering 524 films connected to it. But anyway... What the, is NC-17? The, but the, I, I don't know. I think it's... Does that mean that you have to be 17 to see the film, or does it mean you have to be with a 17? I don't fucking care. Anyway, you point be being... 17 in North Carolina. <laughs> exactly. Damn it! Like... Um, but they, yeah, the takeaway from that is the fact that 58% of films rated in America are R-rated. So they're either 15 or 18s if you're comparing it to British classification, um, which is fascinating. I mean, some of the reasons behind it have to be down to the fact that um, we, we've 
we're we're capable of doing more with cinema than we used to be able to do. Um, people are kind of across the board quite desensitized, so therefore I think uh, darker approaches to things are definitely more acceptable nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also I think people are you know they're realizing how much of a market you know you, you don't have to hit a mass target market to pull in mass numbers. If you do a niche really well and that niche spreads spreads like wildfire, you know you can you know we've seen it happen. I mean, even with like superhero films, kind of it seemed like a cardinal sin a while back for a superhero film to be a higher age rating than a twelve, and now you know Deadpool, Logan, etc. I mean, personally, I think the Dark Knight films should have been at least fifteens. Like the Dark Knight itself is, I don't know how the fuck that is only a twelve. It is, it is so aggressive and it is so dark and it is so like intimidating. Like I, I genuinely think if that film was released in our modern kind of fear of terrorism landscape with the stuff that happens in the film like blowing up the hospital and shit like that like i 100 percent categorically think it would be a 15 mm. and you would and i would say it's not gory but then you've got harvey dent's face which is melted off and it looks like blood yeah it's, it's really intense man really really intense i've watched bank robber films that have less violence in them and higher age ratings Oh yeah, and there's like I, like there's I've seen there's more violence in the opening scene of The Dark Knight than there are in other thriller films I've seen that have much higher ratings. But it's fascinating. Interesting. Yeah, that is a, that is a very interesting study. I, I'd like to read more. <laughs> well, you can find more at dummy 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 dot. <laughs> no, anyway, right, fuck it. Come on, we need to talk about Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, so you know, let's cut to the chase. Everyone knows what this film is. The Freddie Mercury biopic. It's not really about Queen, is it? It's all about Rami Malek and his performance. But did it do what it set out to do? Um, did we gain anything from it as an audience? Will, hit me with your thoughts. Um, so, <laughs> I have so many complex, complicated, complex thoughts about Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, so the film is takes place... Uh, it starts with a... It starts with... Um, Freddie Mercury waking up um, coughing. First shot of Freddie Mercury is him coughing. Um, sorry, I'm, I, I need to calm down about this. I just think that's a bad choice to start off a film. Oh, there it, it's, the, it, it's the beginning of many terrible Hollywood tropes that befall this movie. Let, yeah, let's just crazy. like, just a brief bit of context for people that aren't familiar with this before we start going in on it. This film was directed by Brian Singer. Brian fucking Singer. Of all the people to direct this movie, why did they choose the guy that did the X-Men films who is currently kind of avoiding several sexual assault allegations? Mm. I, ju- I just can't fathom why he was the choice. I, I know this had a real... This was another film that had a really story kind of production, like amp up to filming. Like, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen was going to be involved and then he wanted to do things with it and go deeper and probably sexualize it more than Queen wanted to do. And obviously so much of this film rested on the royalties of Queen. Like you can't do this film without having the ability to play the songs officially and all this kind of junk. So this really is the story as Brian, Roger and John want it told. Well, Brian and Roger, do you know about John Deacon? Oh, is he dead? No, alive has been in hi- not in hiding for 30 years. Crazy, Where? Right? 
Oh, well, well, I'm not <laughs> you, if he's in hiding, you're not exactly going to know where. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but no, he's well. Hiding is a, maybe a strong term, but he's been away since Freddie Mercury's death. He went into quite a bad, sp- bad spiral of depression and drugs, and since then hasn't been in the public eye. Um, his wife lies about like where he is, and if press are calling him up, she do- she t- she tells them that out- him- he's out of the country. He's just taken a complete leave of absence from Queen in general. So it's kind of Brian May and Roger Taylor's film. And Brian May, hang on, let's find the quote. Brian May tweet uh, Instagrammed this year, um, saying this. Today, under the auspiciousness of our new Supreme Director, Dexter Fletcher, because this is when Brian Singer got removed from the project, I got my own directorial chair. I was very touched. And I think that kind of tells you a lot about what you need to know about Bohemian Rhapsody Rhapsody film, is that for me, it's it's a good enough film, but considering the legacy, the craziness, the excess, the... The real, empower, the real empowerment, but also tragedy of Freddie, Freddie Mercury as a bisexual man, um, it just fell short on so many of the, 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 the real emotional and powerful, magical, magically real even it, yeah. possibilities of this film. It, it really did. This is a really glossy walk down the middle path. This is like... Yes. Everything in this film is good, but it's not great. It's not awesome, and it's not it's not Queen. This like the the one thing I would say about this movie that I think it really really does deserve credit for is I think they you know they they recreate at the start and at the end of the film they recreate the eponymous um, Live Aid performance that you know for people that aren't familiar Queen got drafted into late. Um, after Freddie was diagnosed with AIDS, um, they hadn't performed together for a year, etc., etc. Um, it's iconic, um, and they almost like for like recreate that scene. They do about twelve minutes of what was a twenty-minute performance, mm. and it is. Um, I, I went and watched it. You know, I this film will get you into the mood. Like it has all the songs in it. Rami Malek is incredibly charismatic and I'd say in the on-stage scenes, which are littered through the majority of it, it's quite a lot of it is kind of set on stage, um, he is Freddie Mercury. It's kind of haunting, especially in this Live Aid sequence. And a lot of that is down to the fact that instead of hiring a choreographer, they hired a like a body language trainer or someone, mm, someone who was like, um, she'd done a PhD in speech and sign language development and she works on films with actors that are basically forming impressions of like world leaders or big figures or you know they you know she works on biopic based films and instead of choreographing you know let's let's dance like freddie mercury danced on stage for this scene they watched hours and hours of footage some of it like, the public hasn't even seen to get every like eye twitch every like stammer every kind of tipping of the chin all of this down all of these micro expressions and that you know it it works it really fucking works Mm. where it comes apart a bit for me was in the long scenes of dialogue and exposition which is kind of the glue that keeps this film trundling along um 
he starts to feel more like the Rami Malek that I know and enjoy from Mr. Robot doing quite a funny performance as an eccentric person than he does actually embodying Freddie Mercury. Yeah, um, I completely agree. I think the other actors, I think they're, they, they range from passable to good. I'd say that the actor that plays Brian May is probably the best out of all of them. I think oh, he's, he, he's, um, it's uncanny. It really he looks is. exactly like Brian May, and he sounds exactly like yeah, Brian May. Yeah, I, I, I'd say he for the for the majority of the film is probably the best actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the guy who plays Roger is passable. The guy who plays Deakins is quite funny, but he's kind of played as the comic relief character, which makes me think like, was he really like that, or are you just kind of using that as another trope? Um, Lucy Boynton plays Mary... Is it Mary Austin? Mary Austin, Yeah, um, she does a good job. You know, she's a likeable... She's a likeable actress. Um, I have absolutely no idea what Mary Austin was like, so I can't really draw any comparison. Um, But I just... They look fairly similar. I'll say They look fairly similar. And from archive footage I've seen of Mary, um, she does... It does look very similar and sort of has the same kind of mannerisms and sort of... like spark she's yeah. quite she was quite bubbly and that's yeah okay but i just yeah i just thought this film was too choppy it was too heavily edited um even just using like the corniest like graphics like there's a bit where they like go on an american tour and it's like these like shit 70s animations of like the the names of the cities or the states that they play in, like bouncing around on the screen, it looks like a fucking Windows screensaver. I just thought yeah, some really of it, does. some of it, just felt so tacky. Um, mm. I think also if they're trying to make, if they were trying to make a historically accurate film, uh, they got an archivist um, called Greg Brooks to research every scene and try and make it as realistic as possible. However, then they have his historical inaccuracies like the firing of Freddie Mercury's um, manager slash boyfriend, uh, personal manager, um, th- who is fired after the Live Aid performance. And then so they make so they fire in the film. He's fired before the Live Aid performance and the Live Aid performance is supposed to be not tainted at all by Freddie's d- dark side. Like Freddie's got Freddie is dying, but Freddie is now on the right track. Which doesn't really happen in real life. Like the, the footage from it in the film about Freddie's birthday party, that's taken from 1985. Um, the crossover, there's crossover between Freddie's ex-boyfriend and his personal manager, who we both dated at the same time, who both went to his birthday party in 1985. Um, and I think probably one of the most un- unforgivable historical inaccuracies. Um, it's be- not that I have a problem with it, the film being historically inaccurate. I have a problem with them claiming that it is historically accurate by hiring an archivist and Brian May and Roger Taylor talking about it being historically accurate. Um, Ray Foster, the EMI executive, played by Mike, an unrecognisable Mike Myers, um, but Mike Myers nonetheless. Oh um, my god, oh my god, that was Mike Myers. Didn't click, did it? No, it no, you know what, you, you know what, it fucking clicked, it clicked in the opening credits, I was like, oh cool, Mike Myers is in this film, like, who's he going to play? I had no idea. Yeah, I know. Oh, mate. All right, that is good acting. I fucking love it. No, yeah, very good, very good acting. acting. It's, he's, very um, acting. It's, it's unrecognizable. Yeah, he's a funny but, character. Uh, Ray, Foster, Ray Foster doesn't exist. Ray Foster is an accumulation um, 
of EMI records. Um, so the EMI records did not want to put out Bohemian Rhapsody. And so that was focused into the character of Ray Foster. Now, I don't have fully a lot of problems with, with all of the historical inaccuracies. I just have an issue when a film is trying to be a biopic um, that is true to its historical realism and yet has got so many fatal flaws in its, in its history. And for me... I might get a bit so foxy. Please rein me in. Go on, go on. Um, for me, um, I felt that this film whitewashed a lot of the gay stuff. Now, it's been said on Instagram, and not, not just Instagram. It's just been said on Instagram. It's been said in a lot of articles, and there's been a lot about Tumblr about it, Reddit, Instagram, of uh, outrage about the whitewashing of this film, um, of Freddie Mercury's sexuality. I'm not particularly upset about the whitewashing of whitewashing of particular moments. I think that they address throughout the film his sexuality. I think my problem with in it is that you only meet gay characters who are either sex who have who are sex driven and bad or gay characters who are pure, not sex driven and are like Jim Hutton and and are completely like the, the purest person ever, like the darling of um, Freddie Mercury. And I kind of think that it just goads me a little bit when I look at it. I just I just think that I don't want I don't want crazy sex scenes. I just want an acknowledgement that Freddie Mercury was a sexually liberated gay man, and that doesn't necessarily have to be awful. It had, it, the circumstances, what happened, is not great. But why is being a sexually liberated gay man um, all bad? Because I, wa I, wanted, I wanted them to tell a story of sexual freedom that excess led to too much of it. Not, the, not which I think is the message of the film that actually happened, was that a lot of the gay sex in the film was just inherently problematic because it was so dark and seedy. There is a scene in this film where I think maybe Killer Queen or We Will Rock You is playing and Freddie is being led by um, his personal manager and his boyfriend at the time into a red dark room and he's looking confused and there's all these leather men at the sides of it and he's looking scared and it goes in and it just and the screen blacks out and I just felt like don't do that. There is also, show, show there is also cutting into your soapbox, there is also this, this <laughs> fucking just, you know, there's nothing particularly wrong with it. It's just the, like, uh, it, it, uh, there's a bit where he's on the phone to Mary while he's on, on tour. He's on like a pay phone to Mary while he's on tour in America. And he watches this big burly trucker get out of a van and go into a men's toilet and then the camera keeps cutting between him kind of looking all kind of like um, mystified at this toilet of this that this truck has just gone to of this drive through and then cutting back to Freddie's eyes looking all like, will he do it? Will he won't? And it like I just thought, Christ, like insert the most stereotypical like first gay experience like trope in there. Do you know what I mean? Like correct, it, correct. make it as like seedy as you possibly can, why not? Um I do yeah. I do it all the gay sex was all the gay sex was nothing about love. It was about partying excess and stereotypes. Yeah, I do agree I with you. I, I do agree that. with you. And I think that I, I think that while it is probably quite true I haven't read his biography, but while it's probably quite true that a lot of the gay sex in his life 
um, not because it was gay sex, but because of the environment he was in and the people he associated with. I think, you know, sex with anyone when you're a celebrity of that level um, is, is dangerous and probably done for the wrong reasons unless it's in a committed relationship. Um, mm-hmm. because you, you just attract people that are kind of wanting something from you. They want a bit of the fame, don't they? Um, but what I would say is I, I do agree. I think it would have, there's, there's better ways they could have shown it. They could have made it more well-rounded. Um, I think a, a large reason why it ended up coming off this way to you and to me and to probably a lot of other people is not because they didn't want to fully develop it but I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that because it's a PG-13 film sex either way in this film is largely skipped over there's a lot of sexualization, but there's not really any sex and I think the mm. problem with that is when you're trying to tell the story of someone who had an incredibly debaucherous lifestyle if you want to accurately show that they had gay relationships that were both positive and negative, you have to go in deeper. Whether you want mm-hmm. to, when, whether you want to see it on the screen or not, a 12-rated a, a film is not the film that's going to be capable of showing it in that breadth. Um, and so, so for me, my biggest takeaway from it was not necessarily that they were um, queer baiting or doing anything that you know some films have been accused of recently, but I think they kind of. They, they, they within the parameters they were working with this film, and maybe this is a bit of a maybe this is a bit of a um, naive thing to say. Maybe it is as black and white as they just didn't really have a handle on it, and they probably didn't see. You know, fucking Brian Singer directed this film. Maybe they just didn't have <laughs> they didn't have enough advice on how to portray this stuff. But I do think an element of it was um, because it, I'm including like his relationship, which is sexual at the beginning of the film with Mary Austin. Um, mm. both ways of the spectrum it's not really a very considered and thoughtful approach um, and I think that's down to the fact that they didn't have the right people on board to tell that but also weren't pushing for the age classification that would enable them to show it properly in a nuanced mm. way yeah but anyway anyway, I, I, I can get go on go on go on you could go on forever about well, it no, I'm, you're I, say. I'm getting off my soap, soapbox <laughs> right, you're getting off it because he's I, getting off it people. I'm getting off my soapbox Put your book I'm, down. I'm off the soapbox I just I'm off the soapbox everyone, people everyone. it's all fine can you hear us? Um, please tune back into the 52 Week Film Project. Will is off his soapbox. Um, How dare you? They, 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 this is why people come to this this 52 Week Film Project is my soapbox. Um, but yeah, I, I I think that was it. My only other point from this film before we go on to critic quote is. Um, it fell for the classic Hollywood. I thought this film was overly long, considering I didn't really gain anything that I didn't already know from it, and I'm not a very big Queen fan as it is. Um. But I didn't like the way it ended. It ended on the Live Aid performance and then walking off stage. And I get it, end on a high. Like, that was the high point before, obviously, he sadly had a few years in Jim Hutton's care before he died. But, forgive me, I wanted to know more about Freddie's final days. I wanted to Mm. know more about what happened to the band after that and the decline. Now, I know in Hollywood lore... That doesn't make for a good ending for a film. But I expected a little bit more than just having slideshow 
screens at the end of the film, like completely glossing over the remaining six years of his life. Correct. I thought it was. I thought because... it was crap. I thought it was just rubbish that the film tells such a detail. It takes too fucking long to tell what it tells as quite a simple story, and then does nothing with arguably the bit that people don't really know in much detail. Mm. I don't yeah. know. That just that just that just pissed me off. That that, yeah. that really frustrated and, and me. In terms, there's so many so much rich stuff from 1985 to Freddy's death, and I think it was 1991. You have seven or five, six more years of Freddie Mercury, oh, and, the, and the band the band talk about it is their golden years because Freddie said that he was dying, and um, and he just wanted to make. I think his exact words were, "I'm just going to make music till I fucking die." Um, and that and that is such an amazing sentiment to have. I'd love to see that on screen, but it's a shame. Fun fun fact for you. Um, my fun fact. I'm saying my girlfriend Olivia because listeners don't know, but Will obviously does. You know, Ollie. Um, yes. Her mum has been a nurse for a large part of her life and was the primary nurse on Freddie Mercury's deathbed. No. She um she spent about she spent the final month of his life with him, um in hospital and then also a few days at his home in Holland Park. Wow. Fascinating. She said he was a um I, I she never said knew she that. said he was a a beautiful um free-spirited kind man. Um and she said because I was talking to her the other night about it and she she said that when she first watched the trailers for the film she thought that they just weren't doing his voice right. Um, which I, I find interesting, and, and it, she kind of she said after that, like I wonder whether maybe it was because he was so ill when I when I met him, but yeah, maybe wow. Rami's just not doing a good enough job. Maybe they should have got Helen on board as an executive producer. <laughs> well, yeah, it'd be better than getting Brian and Roger Taylor on as creative consultants as they were creative consultants. Anyway, anyway uh, do you want to go on to critic choice? Yes, mate. So my best description of this film was from Simran Hams of the Observer. And he said, fans of the band might enjoy watching the movie cycle through their hits, and there are many, but those like me hoping for a more robust appraisal of the late Freddie Mercury may find themselves disappointed. I think that's exactly what I've said. I wanted more in terms of facts, in terms of goss, in terms of detail, but I still left the the film, got in the car with my mate, and jammed out all the way home to their greatest hits. It yeah, really I've got it really got me into it, and I'm still listening now, a week later. Yeah, and it's what's nice about the film is it's made me aware of more Queen albums that I've never been before. I've just started listening on repeat to Freddie Mercury's majorly panned um, single stuff, um, and I, I'm really enjoying it. It's quite nice to hear a different different style of Queen. Um, they also. It's, it's um... interesting. I didn't realise that I'm in love with my car, which is a joke. Was a real song? Yeah, like, they, they make a joke about it in the film that that's a song that Roger really wanted to get on an album. And it turns out that actually is a song. That's a song that yeah. they released and it's dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so my best description is by Jesse Hassinger from AV Club. And he says, like a lot of depictions of rock music on film, Bohemian Rhapsody lacks both the stylistic daring of a music video and the outright euphoria of a proper musical. But it gets closer to both with the Live Aid sequence, which I think is fair. I think probably um, probably 
one of the stellar okay i'm gonna do it in, in, in without saying it's gonna do it in a different order my best moment of the film is live aid 1985 um, yeah okay because it just is just as wonderful and re-watching it um watching the actual live aid and then watching the Rami malik version he's doing exactly the same as you said about with his body language um so yeah i think it's a fair enough description cool. um my most savage uh quote was from Danny Lee of the Financial Times, and he said, The broad and larky tone suits the early days of wide-eyed tours and Top of the Pops. But as the script frantically scrolls through the band's Wikipedia page, the cast cast rarely have the chance for more than mimicry. I mean, that's so true. I like Again, it's just going over the fact that it's so glossy, and you probably could gain the same level of detail from the wiki page. Yeah, and it's so annoying is that it seems like every time there's a conflict, it gets resolved by a different member of the band writing a song. Yeah, all right. Well, anyway, don't cut across my best moment. Come on, tell me about your most savage crime. <laughs> um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so my most savage is from Owen Richards at the Arse Desk, and he says it's polished, inauthentic, sanitised, and plays like a 130-minute trailer. Yeah, so true. 130-minute trailer. God, what a fucking trailer. Yeah. Um... Yeah, no, I completely agree. I completely agree. It's 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 too long and not over the top enough and not in depth enough. Um, right. my, my best moment actually is one of the most Hollywood bits of the movie. Now, I mean, there are so many Hollywood bits in this film that completely ruin it. Um, case in point being possibly one of the worst, like cringiest moments of a film ever which is the scene where Freddy goes to the doctors and kind of like, you don't hear it, but like clearly gets confirmed his diagnosis. And then he walks out into like a barely lit um, hallway of what must be a hospital. And there's this like disheveled, like we're assuming gay AIDS patient who is sat in like a hospital gown. And Freddy walks past and the little boy, like the, the young guy goes, Ew. And Freddy turns around and goes, Ayo. It is just the worst. I think it might be, it might be the worst bit in a film I've seen since we've reviewed, started reviewing films. Really? I thought it was, I thought it was fucking awful. No, mate, I thought it was, I I thought it was just, mate, watch it back when this comes out on DVD. It is so bad. Fair enough. I hated it. I hated it. Um, favourite moment though was the bit where they're all starting to argue and the band's starting to fracture and Deacons is just in the corner doing the bass riff to another one bites the dust and then it just like that's how the song was made you know yeah I enjoyed that as massively well. I, massively I enjoyed, John, I enjoyed John Deacon the most I think I think I'd like John Deacon the most out of the band yeah 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 I agree um, what would you rate it um, I would rate it a hmm six generous which is quite high the reason that which is quite high considering i just went on a soapbox rant about it but i think this film to me served as a glorified document like mockumentary music video and i kind of enjoyed that part of it i enjoyed the fact that i was seeing rami malek doing a great job at acting freddie mercury and i enjoyed the fact that i liked i saw these um, never before the scenes, scenes of not even not never before scenes of Queen. Just like cool um, footage from the shows that were redone, it made me appreciate Queen more. Yeah, six. Right. I give it a five. I think that Rami does a half decent job. I think that his on stage persona is you know just 
absolutely on the money. Uh, I don't think he's going to win the Oscars for his acting and the rest of it. Um, and I just think there were so many problems with the film, but it still kind of got me going. It got me in the mood. Um, so five out of ten. Cool. Um, next up on the bill this evening, uh, we have a quick five-minute <laughs> review of The Hate You Give by Mr. William Paxton. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Jake Leonard. Um, it's based on a book by Angie Thomas, um, it, it's, which is a young adult book of the, of the same name. Um, and it's directed by George Tillman Jr., the director of Notorious and Men of Honour. Um, it stars Amandala Stenberg as Star Carter, who has ruined the Hunger Games, has a good um, supporting cast, um, and it has Anthony Mackie as King, who also plays Falcon in Avengers. Do love um, a bit. Do love a bit of Anthony Mackie. Yes. This so the film in general, the the plot essentially revolves around Star, who um, at the age of ten loses one of her best friends. Um, to a gang shooting and is then then moved away from her home school in Garden Heights to um, a, a in a to a school in a rich area which is predominantly white. Um, then this is the sort of background to the story. Star then is living this sort of half life. She's living one life in her township with her parents and and with her friends from long long ago. But then she's also living this sort of Star Mark Two or version two, where she is trying to be essentially as non-ghetto as possible, so that the white kids can accept her. Um, she goes to a party and meets up with um, one of her young, old, oldest best friends, who knew her friend had died, and um, they drive back home from this party together. And in an altercation, in inverted commas, with the cops, a cop shoots um, the guy called Khalil. Um, the film then. Go, talk then starts going on about um, is Star going to do anything? Is Star, as she is the witness to the shooting, or is she in fact going to just hush it up because she want because she doesn't want to be the victim of white prejudice or indeed the gang culture which would be exposed if um, Star told her true story. Um, the film has got some incredible acting in it. I mean, some of the writing in this film and some of the things that the cast do with the writing is just incredible. There are sequences where you're crying with laughter at like there's a sequence where um, Star's white boyfriend meets her ex-Black Panther dad and the whole cinema was an uproar. And then two seconds later, there's gunshots fired through the windows. And the whole cinema gasped. I've never been in a cinema experience like it, where the whole of the cinema was shouting, screaming, crying loudly together. It was like we were one. I've never experienced a cinema screen like that before. Um, and it, and it got a stand, it's got a standing ovation for a couple of people and claps from most people after it finished playing, which was really, really interesting. I haven't seen a film do that in a while. Um, I think that it's, I do think there are some problems with it. Um, it suffers from being a young adult book and therefore a young adult film. Um, they have a voiceover that explains, like Yardi, when I reviewed Yardi, they have a voiceover, which is Star's internal monologue, which never really works because the th things that are happening on screen and the acting that's happening um, 
in the third person rather than talking to the talking to the um, talking to the screen, breaking the fourth wall, is fantastic. They don't need to break the fourth wall ever, but I think they find it important to try and explain the plot because it's a twelve, it's a film for a twelve. They want to explain the nuance. Um, I think sometimes because it's a young adult film, the racism that comes across um, for a lot from the white school is so oblique. Um, and so in your face, which actually I don't think is the point. I think the film is the film most of the way through it is so nuanced in the way it treats its characters. And I think sometimes it's let down by some really clunky dialogue. I mean, there's one one of Star's friends from the, I'm going to call it the white school, but it's not the white school, but from the school she goes to um, is is this girl who's essentially trying to be black and um, goes on marches to, like, say, Justice for Khalil, but then watches a newsreel about the officer who shot the guy um, who um, is, like, being defended by his father. And she's like, and she says the phrase, white lives matter. And I was like, that is a clunky line. It should not be in this film. The film was better than having clunky lines like that. And also just non, just, just play deadpan. And it, it just was almost like, oh, snap. Like, I, I'm not a fan. Um, they also had a very odd choice in the saturation of the cinematography. So in the Garden Heights, um, which is the sort of predominantly black neighbourhood, they have a sort of more warm yellow tint on the lens. And then for the white neighbourhood, they've got a blue white tint. Now, the blue white tint of the white neighbourhood is really, really strong. And it just it's just a bit upsetting. It's like it's like a Tim Burton film one minute. And then a kind, of, and then Yardy the next. It's very odd. So it's too many, quite... too many changes on screen. Exactly, it remains quite inconsistent. Okay. Otherwise, Jesus Christ, this has this film got heart. Um, I, I, I read the other day the screenplay was written by a woman called Audrey Wells, who died of cancer on the fourth of October, the day before the US um, released the film, um, and she does an incredible job. Um, there are some clunky moments as I've already mentioned, but she, but. All in all, the writing of some of the stuff is just so good. It, um, it is interesting because I like I, I wasn't familiar with this film before you mentioned it this evening, saying you were going to bring it up. Um, but I, I now am. I now can picture the film you're talking about, and it's um, it is it, it's based on a book, kind of a, a Mallory Blackman esque novel, um, and it's kind yeah. of been reviewed by some people as a kind of like a um, an approach to this topic that. Um, is kind of like you know important for younger people you know people younger than our demographic to watch kind of like their version of Fruitvale Station for us I don't know if you're mm. familiar with that film but that's the Michael B. Jordan film with actually with Ryan Coogler who's the Black Panther director um, the true story about the, uh, the young black man who was shot on New Year's Eve um, when he was on his way on the train to celebrate um, by a white cop and it's um probably one of the most powerful films i've ever watched it's um mm. it's it's really really impressive and this film's drawn a lot of parallels yeah um, it draws a lot of parallels but also i think i think it is predominantly for its for a young adult audience i felt a lot of the time that there were there were things that were really hard hitting and powerful and there were scenes that you wouldn't expect to see in a young adult novel and there were scenes that were so scary and so intense and so upsetting um but then it was kind of balanced out by oh this is actually young adult it's being it's being written for a young adult audience um stark the person who plays star carter is just fantastic like 
the whole she lights up the screen when she acts um and then lastly the person who plays maverick carter her father um, russell hornsby is a, i hope gets nominated for an oscar for his performance um just go quickly into critics choice reviews which i did for it um best description by Anne derek galliott um whilst while the film simplifies the story somewhat it never loses its heart the brilliant emerging star in her own voice and pride in the community that lifts her up most savage keith watson the film lays out the complexities of contemporary race relations with a deliberateness that frequently edges over its didacticism not sure about that review at all i understand that it's is it's trying to deal with complex race issues but it never I, I don't think it clunks that often um the best moment um is probably the first scene where it starts off with the star's dad giving star her brother and her like one-year-old brother as well the talk and the talk for black communities of what happens if a policeman ever stops you which is put out your hands onto the dashboard so you can see them remember that being black isn't being black is a superpower and they can't tell you anything but at the same time this is a thing that might seriously happen and everyone needs to understand that i'm not getting my daughter shot because of the rea realities of life very moving film very powerful film rating 7.5 okay mm -hmm. no i'll have to give it a look yeah i think it um it did look interesting for the trailers. I think I was a little bit put off by kind of like the youth aspect to it. I think there's so many films um, that tackle a similar issue um, that I'm still yet to see that are adult films um, that I've been recommended that I think it's kind of, it, I think I kind of sidelined it when I saw it kind of come up um, because of that. But no, mm. I, um, I'll have to check it out. And Anthony Mackie is unrecognisable as the baddie of the piece. Mate, I think he's great. What's that film called with The Rock, him and Mark Wahlberg, um, where they all get really jacked up and they try and like rob someplace? Um, Is it called Pump or something like that? Oh, it's it's by Anthony Michael Bay. It's, it's like Get Hard or something, but it's not Get Hard. Um, Mark Wahlberg film. <laughs> power of google pain um, and gain pain, pain and, and gain. gain what a fucking classic i could probably watch that film like on repeat like i think i've seen it like three or four times i love it the same way i love the fast and furious films it's 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 a it, i haven't seen it I and anthony mackie is like hooked on steroids in the film and he's like injecting his ass the whole time it's just so funny man i know right, anyway Rebel wilson's Rebel wilson's talking about his penis yes 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 yeah um, anyway, on to the final film of the week. Um, this episode will be released um, around Halloween time. Next week, spooky. Ne Next week, we're going to be reviewing Slaughterhouse Rules, which is the new Simon Pegg film that's coming out on Halloween. Um, so we can bring you that sooner. So kind of treat from right now to the end of next episode as our Halloween edition of the Fifty Two Week Film Project. We are starting that with Apostle. Now, we were chatting shit for a few weeks saying we were going to go and see First Man and Bad Times at the El Royale. Um, it's gone well, hasn't it? <laughs> transpires that we've managed to see neither of them. Um, we've sworn we will see them and we will review them. Um, it's just not the right time. You know? No. Our path has been taken elsewhere. And our path has been taken down a dark, twisted lane on a mysterious island um, called Apostle. 
The film is called Apostle, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> this, yeah, the, um, of the film is now, the film's called Apostle. Apostle, I saw trailers for this months ago. I completely forgot it was coming out. And then when me and Will were short of time, we were like, fuck it, let's just do it. It's come out a few weeks ago on Netflix. It looks terrifying. There are people really freaking out about it. Um, it's got this great energy. Um, this movie is directed by Gareth Evans, who is a Welsh filmmaker who has made two films in the last six years called The Raid and The Raid 2. Now, these films are Indonesian films, and they are known for having some of the best martial arts and combat scenes since Enter the Dragon Bruce Lee. They are just... um, And they they have a good storyline as well. They are just really, really impressive films. I've never seen cinematography like it. I still say that to this day. I think it's it's something that huge Hollywood action directors cannot achieve. And there is a young guy in his 30s from Wales that is doing it. Um, and so this is his next project. Um, it takes a different tone, but you can, you know, it, it's still very brutal. It's very aggressive, um, but it allows him to kind of flex his more kind of, he, he's showing restraint in Apostle. It's different to the kind of head on rush of his previous films. Um, which is really cool. Um, it's kind of like imagine like the Wicker Man vibes. It's essentially about a um, ex-Christian missionary who um, heads to a mysterious island where there is kind of like a, a group of settlers who all worship um, a prophet who is one of three men that washed up, capsized on this island, and claim that. Um, the the island's deity speaks through them, um, and you kind of you, you find out quite quickly. Essentially, this this guy is sneaking onto this island to try and rescue his sister, who is being held for ransom by the islanders. Um, you don't know why, um, and it kind of as it, as it gets on through the film, you realise that this this kind of cultish group um, rely on animal sacrifices. Um, to kind of feed the land in order to kind of maintain fertility of crops and all sorts. Um, it's very, very slow at the beginning. Mm. Now, I don't know about you, Will, but I watched I watched this in two parts. I watched the first hour and then I didn't get bored, but I just wasn't in the right frame of mind. And I was thinking, this is so... Like, it's great. Like, the acting is excellent. Um, Michael Sheen in particular playing like this prophet the leader of this cult he is um, he's just he's got this crazed look in his eye and he's got this really cool haircut all the kind of costumes for this you know it's a borderline period piece all of the costumes are done really well it's kind of shot in this way that the whole thing looks really drab and grey but without looking boring it looks really striking Every single shot in this film was incredibly striking right from the get-go. But the first hour was pretty slow, um, and I decided to stop watching it and pick up the rest the next day because I thought, if I'm watching it now and I'm not in the right frame of mind, maybe it's not going to work for me. Um, the second half, though, my fucking God. it like It's one of the most blood-curdling, like, intense things I've seen recently. I mean, what did you think about it? Yeah, I I completely agree. I think 
Um, there are certain there are certain moments in the film that you think that you sort of you look at it and think, okay, this is an interesting like piece about what living in a cult is like and what religion and does and yeah yeah exactly. But the second part of the film is just a bloodbath. You see characters that you've built to really really like and i think that's the film's strength is that it built the first hour essentially builds up the relationships between the characters it builds up where everyone stands in this cult where dan stevens as tom richardson um the main guy how he's going to try and do it and the last hour of the hour of the film is essentially essentially takes place over a couple of hours maybe an hour, two hours, rather than like three days, which is the first hour. And it's just a bloodbath. Everyone starts going slightly mad, um, whether it's whether it is um, due to grief or due to the island or due to the goddess every or due to even guilt and remorse. Everyone starts to lose a bit of their self. And it it culminates in, in these really creepy, bloody gory deaths i've never seen death scenes that are so affecting there's one in particular um which i don't want to spoil for the listener um but it involves needless to say to jake so he can know it involves um a screw um oh and... my god like i've never seen a like a screw be captured on film in such a like a haunting way like oh my god like yeah. you, you seem to be fair to be fair, you you see this in the trailer, but essentially there's a bit where someone is kind of tied down on a table and is lobotomized, um, and the, the bit the image that I can't get out of my head to this day isn't like the hole that's bored in his skull or the disgustingness of all of that, but right before all of the kind of like the you know and it is like a one take scene as well. Like it kind of goes through it, like really, you know, it's really grim. You see everything, um, but it's it's this sh- close-up shot from the side, and it's a side view of the nail that's on this kind of twisting thing that's going to get turned by cogs. Um, it's the nail, and it's just like an inch gap, and then the scalp of this person where their hair has just been cut away, oh. and it's just, and then you watch the screw go in from that same camera view and it it, oh it's just like it's giving me the shivers now like Mm. it's really really freaky um and i think you know a couple of minutes ago you elected that we're not going to spoil this film i think i agree this is really interesting and you know you know from the get-go that this is a film where it's going to kind of descend into chaos um but we won't say any more than that what i will say is um, Michael Sheen is phenomenal. Like puts in, I I think one of the most impressive character performances. I like in. in I've seen this... Michael Sheen not. Do, I, I don't think I've seen Michael Sheen do much better work. Like he's a great actor in and a good actor in most stuff. But he's always like yeah. Always, I always think of him as an ensemble man. And here he's he is the. He steals the show. Yeah, he's he's a. What's great about him is that he is neither hero nor villain. He's he is uh, he is he is quite bad as a character and does terrible terrible things. But you, he's not a monster. He has he just has he just has a completely different mindset of everyone else. He believes everything that he's preaching, and it's it's that idea of false prophet that he believes everything and he's wrong. 
and actually yeah. it causes so much more pain in the long run. And it's so interesting to see him play that because he he, he interestingly he, he you know he he isn't a villain, mm. um, and I don't think he's ever really in the film portrayed as a villain. He's portrayed as someone that you shouldn't trust and someone who is quite intimidating, but he's intimidating in the way. Um, like he's kind of like he's, he's ruling the roost and he doesn't want to let a good thing crash and burn so he's mm. kind of he's crazy and he's angry because he's passionate not because he's bad um I, yeah it is it is terrific and then like without saying much more um mark lewis jones who is a welsh actor who gotta give him credit i haven't really seen him in anything else but he is one of the other three founding members of of Eriston, this this island um in the second half of the film he kind of in many ways takes up the reins and becomes a much more primary character and he his his aggression and his physicality is like i i just i i don't think i'm trying to think of something to compare it to film wise i think the only thing i can compare it to this year is kind of like the the physicality and the presence of of um of thanos and I know that's a really like you know like oh Jake but that wasn't a really intense clever character driven movie like it's just Josh Brolin led in such a physical way in that film whether you enjoyed Infinity War or not the majority of Thanos is intimidation and what really made him probably the iconic superhero villain of like the last 15 years in film anyway um, was yeah. his kind of brutal power and his like you know just yeah. you know grabs spider-man by the head and chucks him away and shit like yeah, that the like, mad intelligent brute as a character yes. is a really and, interesting character to explore and mark lewis jones in apostle does that same thing but as a pious religious fanatic who is driven crazy by his own power that's what happens in this in in, in apostle and it is um it, it's really unflinching and it's really um there were moments in this film and it wasn't it it actually wasn't the really gory moments there were there were moments where people were just doing things that i find it unnatural to see humans do mm. or acting in ways i just find uncomfortable to watch that made me put my hands in front of my eyes and i'll give them credit i think that's the first time i've ever put my hands in front of my eyes in a netflix film um, yeah. Except for when you know uh, Robert the Bruce's dick was flying around on screen the other week in Outlaw King. <laughs> no, you lie, you lie, you lie. No, because it was like zero point two seconds. No, no, no. Um, Molly's didn't game, get, mate. Didn't get enough of it. Um, what was it? Holly's Molly's, Molly's game. game. What was Molly's game? The one where um, she cuts her hand off. Oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah, we have. We saw. We, it's the thing that grossed us out, and it was like the 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 challenge that we did. Molly's game. Yeah. No, mate. Molly's game is the thing with um, Jessica Chastain about the woman that runs in the casino. Oh, what's that film called then? It's the Stephen King. Oh, uh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah uh, I can't remember, but it's a Stephen King film that's on Netflix, isn't it? And there's a yeah, bit where the woman cuts like cuts her own hand off, but it isn't like she doesn't even cut it off clean. She's like trying to get it out of a handcuff, and she like smushes half her hand up to get the rest of her hand out of the cuff. Oh, mm. mate, that film... that that We haven't even watched the whole movie. We literally just skipped to that scene, and it was disgusting. 
It's gross. It is absolutely that is, gross. That is hideous. Like, I think I would have thrown up even if I was there filming it and I knew it was fake. Gerald's Game. Gerald's Game. That's it. <laughs> Fucking Moddy's Game. Um, <laughs> do you have anything else to add on Apostle other than just people go and watch it and if you are if you struggle with pacing, bear with it through the first hour because it does get much better. Mm. Or oh, maybe think, you'll I love think, it. I think... Um... Actually, what we've talked a lot about the sort of the human horror, but we haven't talked about a lot about the spiritual horror. horror yeah, and the, true. The, the religious big horror. And I would say that although it is uh, it is very terrifying and uh, and brutal and bloody, um, it doesn't. I don't think it's too hammy. There's a lot of horror characters that are quite hammy, and that might make them more terrifying sometimes. But it seems like these. The spiritual characters that are on the island and the people worship that may or may not be a be a bit important part of the film, they're not they never they're never played for laughs. They're never like then then they're never like tr- like screaming or shouting or like have these banshee like screams or like massive jump scare moments. They're just played as quite creepy, odd beings and i think the design work and the imagination especially for um the man the character that's just got a bloody torso and and, um roots for a face um when i say roots for a face i mean like plant roots not like hair roots because that would just be normal face um but yes (laughs) um no no he's terrifying yeah he's he's like amazing imagination did you ever play the silent hill video games or did you ever watch the silent hill movie no. Do you know of the kind of eponymous horror character called Pyramid Head? Yes, I've heard yeah. of Pyramid Head. Right, okay, so it kind of reminded me of that. Uh, that kind of like haunting, no context, can't see its face, bloodied character that stalks other characters. Like, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. Um, I liked that there was... That there's context to the other supernatural elements of the plot and like what the characters represent, but... I still am none the wiser as to what that character represents, what its origins were, where it came from, and I kind of like that. Yeah, I th- I think they didn't try and add so much exposition about spirituality that then it didn't, the film didn't give you anything at the end, so then it w- then it became problematic. They yeah. left it deliberately vague, which then meant that it could actually it it could actually be left deliberately vague, and it wasn't the problem. I think um, if we're going spoiler free as well, I think the best moment in the film for me, um, aside from some of the really meaty character bits sort of midway through the film, um, I thought the ending was really well done. Um, I thought uh, it, it could, in the final like 15 minutes of the film, I felt like the ending could have gone like a million different directions and 99.9% of them are probably a bit shit. Mm. Um, and I just think that it ended quite well. Um, I thought it was quite nice and quite clever. Um, I like films that end without a big climatic music finale. I yeah. like a film to end on silence. Yeah, and it does. It is really it good. Um, do you have what do you have for your best description of Apostle then? I have a great name for my best description. His name is Andy Crump. <laughs> Andy Crump. Andy Crump from the week. Love him. Um, he says, a brutal piece of work which, if you're familiar with director Gareth Edwards' aesthetic, is like describing the sun as hot. He treats <laughs> his supporting characters as pieces of meat to be relieved, screaming of their breath, whether by a gun or spear or worse. Oh god, the spear bit's pretty fucked up, isn't it? Yeah. I forgot about that. That is, a, like, that's the thing about Gareth Edwards directing as well, like, 
it must take so long to get the special effects in order to do some of these like really gory moments and some of them are literally just glossed over like that like they happen and then it's the next thing it's yeah. like they're, they're treated as if they're not a big deal and i think that that is like that makes them so impactful it's like oh oh fuck wow like okay so we're not going to do a saw and like draw this out for six minutes like that just happened and everyone's okay with it are they like oh okay yeah exactly i like that a lot i think it's really clever they focus on bits that are not that gory and they focus and they don't focus on bits that are ridiculously gory and that inconsistency makes it even more scary because you never know what's going to happen next you don't know if it's not like an escalation of the violence and the gore yeah if that makes sense it's an the whole last hour like it's just like it's just one odd crazy thing after the next, but it doesn't need to outdo each other. It's just all crazy. Yeah, uh, my best description is from Rowan Nahar, um, and he said this isn't to say that Apostle is a flawless victory. Far from it, in fact, but it's a worthy and necessary stepping stone for a filmmaker who will only move up the ranks in the years to come. For me, as a as a long you know for the last two or three years, a you know a relatively big fan of Gareth Evans and kind of tracking his his projects this was a very successful step into other territory um and i only think that it kind of it stands him in better stead as as we go forward um interesting for you to well something you'll be interested in he's pitched and is looking at potentially directing a death stroke film <gasps> which is quite cool oh my God, um, he's the perfect director yeah. for a Deathstroke film. Yeah, it'd be great. It'd be great. Um, but anyway, not everyone likes him. What was your most savage quote? My most savage quote comes from Kevin Maher off of Times. No, oh, you uh, bastard. I've got the same one as you. Damn. Um, um, should we try, we say, should we we try say and say it at the same time? time? All right. Three, two, one. Alas. Alas. Everything, everything here, here is... is oh, muted. no, I can't do it. <laughs> we tried our best. Go on. It's, yeah, that's difficult. Um, I'll do the first sentence, you do the second. I'll do the third. All right. No. Okay. Alas, everything here is muted build-up with little payoff. Psychological realism is abandoned. Characters switch loyalties. And temperaments. For no reason. Nah. Yeah! Um, yeah, you, you know, fuck you, Kevin Mayer. Um, I don't think that's very fair. Um <laughs> Yeah. I think I think it's just not I think it's just not true that the characterizations are wrong. Like the characterizations are what make the film actually a really good horror film because I get scared by a lot of horror films because I'm a bit of a wuss, but at the same time I'm not fully interested in them because I just don't think a lot of them have got a plot. Yeah. Whereas this one I was really interested in the characters. And I don't think the payoff was little. I think it was really good. Mm. Um what would you give it out of 10 then? I would give this film a 7.5. Ooh, same as the hate you give. Yeah, I think that it's the rating, it's the rating will bestows. Well, I think, I think, I think actually, I've been um, a lot of films like the, a lot of films that I've really been looking forward to and wanting them to succeed and do amazing things um, have not given me the emotional payoff that both the hate you give and Apostle has given me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I'm going to be honest, mate. I'm going to give it an eight out of ten. I thought it was fantastic. Ooh! Um, I, I, I think, yeah, you know, some people would be like, yeah, but Jake, you're a hypocrite. You said you weren't a fan of the first hour of the film. I think I was. I think I was just quite knackered. Um, I had a busy few days. And I think if I went and revisited the first hour of the film, I would find so much more to enjoy, arguably as much as the second half. Um, yeah. But I just thought, you know, on my second viewing of the film, 
um, my second sit down to complete it. I just thought it was incredible. I just absolutely mm. loved it. I've now watched the film twice, um, like as the whole sittings. And it was really interesting watching the first part of the film again because there's so many interesting things about the cult that are really important for the later on story, which I yeah, really Yeah, I, I am like, going to go. I am going to revisit it. Tiredness. Yeah, yeah, I, re- I, re- I, I reckon I did the same. I'm going to give it a couple of weeks and I'm going to rewatch it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's it. Exciting set of reviews. So Apostle was the film of the week then. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody left much to uh, much to the imagination and much more to be craved from a film that took so long to come out. The Hate You Give. Um, can I just give... Sounds excellent. Sorry, can I just give listeners a piece of advice? If they want to see what Bohemian Rhapsody should have been like, watch the three-minute footage of Freddie Mercury's um, birthday party from 1985. If they want to... Um, because that is joyful and fabulous and wonderful and wacky and bizarre and crazy. And it's done... To, and it's filmed with a professional camera like it's a music video, even though it's not a music video. Segments of it are taken from a later Queen music video. Um, but the whole... The, like, the party is filmed for three minutes with a Queen backing track. Um, I think it's called Let Me Entertain Me You from Jazz and it's just wonderful that is a 9 out of 10 Bohemian Rhapsody ah, well film of the week from Will is uh, Let Me Entertain You a three minute film by Queen um, right well uh, thank you very much uh, that is the end of week 22 of the 52 week film project week 23 we are back with what will be a second half of our Halloween uh, reviews. Okay. We're going to be reviewing Slaughterhouse Rules, which is the new Simon Pegg and Nick Frost film. Um, I don't know whether this is meant to be an extension of the Cornetto trilogy or not. I haven't read into it enough. I'm kind of so many gesticulating movements. as much as I possibly can at Will, because I'm hoping he has an answer but he doesn't. Um, but we will find out all of that soon. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it should be really fun. Another film with Michael Sheen in. So we'll, yep. see, we'll see what happens there. Um, thank you very much, Will. Thank you very much, Jake. And we will see you all next week. Bye.